chapter 5 in a different way. Um, you can look at chapter 5 as we are looking at it, the blessings that come from being justified, from being made right with God. But you could also see chapter 5 as a unit with 6 through 8. I'm considering 6 through 8 as being the first objection to it, 9 through 11 being the next objection. But there are a lot of verbal, a lot of word parallels in 5, 6, 7, and 8 that, that you could definitely make a strong case for 5 to 8 being a unit. That's not the way I used to look at it or grew up looking at Romans, and so I've never really quite seen it as clearly that way. So I just decided to present it my way. Often there are various outlines that are acceptable. It's not like there's just one outline. There's many outlines that show you different facets, different aspects of a book. So it's not like outlines are right or wrong. They just bring out different ways of seeing how the material is put together. So I consider this to be the results, the blessings that we have by being justified. Great stuff and very encouraging. So when somebody read verses 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we live and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, we see salvation past, present, and future here. Having been justified by faith. That sums up what he said so far in the book. We have been justified by faith in the past. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My margin says, let us have peace with God. It's unclear which, which uh, reading is correct. Those are, those are two different readings in the manuscripts. Maybe he's saying, let us have peace with God. Maybe he's saying, we have peace with God. Either way, that is what we have with God based upon the justification he's given us. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace by which we stand. Jesus has given us access into the grace that we have, that we stand in, that we have stability and firmness. We have a firm foundation in this grace. Through Jesus. Everything we have in Christ is through Jesus. Now one of the things that you'll see, and this is one reason we might tie 5 through 8 together. At the beginning of chapter 5, and at the end of every section, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 6.23, in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 725, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the end of 839, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So at the beginning and at the end of every major section, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The point is, everything we have comes through Jesus. There's nothing we have that doesn't come through Jesus. That's, that's certainly true. And, and we, we need to meditate on that and glorify him because of that. Now he also says... Um, that we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now that's the future. We are looking forward to something through God's grace. And what God has already done is the pledge of his future work. It's, it's the opportunity we have by, by what he's done to, uh, uh, to, to have all these blessings 
uh, in the future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now notice how that works. In chapter 1 and verse 21, they did not glorify God. Verse, chapter 3, verse 23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But now, we who scorn God's glory and fall short of God's glory are promised a future share. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. God brings that glory back to us and blesses us again with that amazing glory that we receive. So there's just a lot of things to uh, be thankful for. Now, he says not only this. Well, obviously, we, we, we rejoice in all these things. But we rejoice in our tribulations. Now, I can get rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, but how in the world do you rejoice in your tribulations? Well, he explains it. He says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. So he says tribulations contribute to your hope. But I think you have to analyze this statement a good bit to understand it. Let me see if I can explain what I think you're dealing with. Hope is based, is a combination of two things. When I was growing up as a kid, you know, I'm in a kind of a different generation than most of you. All the preachers said, hope is, is two things. Desire plus expectation. How many of you have heard that? Hope is desire plus expectation. Not as many in this younger generation, perhaps. But, uh, but yeah. And, and that makes sense. You might expect something. Like a bad grade on your report card, but you don't desire it. You're not hoping for it. You know, or you might desire something, but you don't expect it. Like, you know, to win some lottery sweepstakes and get a billion dollars. You, you, you like it. It'd be great, but you're hopeful because you have no expectation of getting that, especially if you never do it. Uh, you've never even entered the sweepstakes or whatever. Uh, so, so hope is desire plus expectation. Now, when it comes to our hope of heaven, is there much of a trick to desire that? And if you have a hard time wanting to go to heaven when you die, I think that's pretty desirable. I think all of us pretty much feel that. The problem we face is not expecting it. You know, will I receive that? Because, you know, do I really have the kind of character that God would bless? Well, so hope is based on proven character. If I have proven character, then I know I, I, I can expect to be in heaven. But my proven character is based upon my perseverance in tribulation. Our character isn't proven until it stands a test. Can you imagine those early Christians? Like being burned at the stake. They're told, deny Jesus or we'll burn you at the stake. Do you really think those guys who were willing to, to praise God as they were being burned really thought, I don't know if I'll make it happen or not. I don't know if I've, I've really got faith enough. Well, if you're willing to die for the cause of Christ, doesn't that prove your character? Doesn't that demonstrate that you have solid faith and reason to believe that you'll be with the Lord in heaven? Really? Going through tough times increases our confidence that we have the kind of character that demonstrates the faith that God will save. So we rejoice in our tribulations because they really contribute to our hope and hope doesn't disappoint. Hope won't let us down. You know, we won't get to, to the judgment day and God says, well, this is kind of a trick. You know, I don't really have anything. No, we'll be like that. Hope will never let us down. 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We know our hope won't disappoint because our God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Don't you love that verb, poured out? You know, the Bible uses it a lot of times. And, and if you pour it out, it's the opposite of like sprinkling it or dribbling it or you know, something like that. It's like you dump it on there. God dumped his love on us. Now, think about this. When God just drenches us in his love, that is the basis for our loving each other. God who has loved us so much has given us such an abundance of love, we've got an overflow of love to share with other people. And the more you think about it, how God was so gracious in his love. He loved people like you and me that are unworthy sinners. When you think about that, is it easier to love unworthy sinners? Yes. Yeah, it sure is. It makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? He poured out his, his, his love to us. The Spirit is often talked about as being poured out. But here the Spirit is the means. Through, the, through this Holy Spirit who was given to us, God has poured out this love of His uh, in our hearts. I don't know what all that implies, the Holy Spirit uh, being the ones through, through whom uh, the love is poured out. But I'll suggest this. What if the only thing you knew about Jesus is that He was a guy who lived in the first century and they ended up crucifying Him? That's all you knew. You didn't know anything about what God had in mind with that, who he was, or anything about that. Probably wouldn't faze you. People have died in electric chairs in this country, I think, still, once in a while. I don't know who they are. I don't really care. It doesn't faze me. The Holy Spirit revealed the meaning of Jesus' death. Revealed God's love to us in a way we would have never understood it otherwise. The Holy Spirit taught us what God's love was all about. And so, the love of God, I hope it doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Thoughts and comments on those first five verses? Six through eleven. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be by shall we be saved by his blood. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Okay. Now look at how we can know for sure God loves us. Look at our situation when Jesus died for us. In verse 6, what were we? Helpless and ungodly. In verse 8, what were we? And in verse 10? Wow! We were helpless. We were totally incapable of saving ourselves. We were ungodly. We were totally unworthy. We were sinners. God, Jesus didn't die for us we were so, such lovable people that he just couldn't resist. Wasn't like that. We were enemies. He, Jesus died for us who were his enemies. 
Doesn't that prove God's love for us? The kind of evil that Jesus died for. You know, and, and he points out, would you die for some enemy? Would you die for just somebody you knew that was an ordinary dude? You might die for somebody you really cared about a lot, somebody who'd done a whole lot for you, but that's rare. Now, not many people are willing to do that. Jesus died for his ungodly, sinner, helpless enemies. That's amazing. Now, here's the point in 9 and 10. This is an important point. It's a hard one to explain. <coughs> but he's saying that if what Jesus has done so far is to justify us by his death, we can certainly trust him to finish the process by saving us in heaven. It's like he's saying if we were reconciled to God when we were his enemies, we'll surely be saved while we're his friends. When one's done the most for his enemies, surely he won't refuse to do the least for his friends. Now what he's saying is, there's a greater gap that God already crossed than the gap he's got to cross to finish the, the purpose. Look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if by the way enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled will be saved by his blood. So we were wrath, we were under wrath, we were his enemies. Now we're saved by grace and we're his friends. That was an enormous canyon. Can you imagine going from wrath to grace, from enemies to friends? That's a huge gap. <laughs> now the gap that separates us now, grace, friends, from glory and eternal salvation is much smaller. It's a lot greater thing what God's already done than what he's got left to do to save us in heaven. That's his point. So we can trust by what he's already done that he'll do the rest of it. Think about it. In the past, think about past, present, and future. In the past, we were helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies. Now we are justified, peace, grace, hope, God's love in our hearts, Holy Spirit in us, reconciled to God. In the future, the glory of God saved from wrath and fully saved. See, there's a lot bigger gap between past and present than it is between present and future. What God's already done for us gives us so much confidence, assurance, con conviction that he will get the job done, he'll finish the job out, and he'll save us eternally. Um, if he invested so much in our initial redemption, surely he won't leave us lacking at the end. And so he says, and not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's almost the pinnacle of what God's done. You know, it's just amazing all he's done. We should glorify and praise him, and we exalt in him. We've received the reconciliation. You think about it. You understand reconciliation? This idea that he's brought us back into harmony and fellowship with God. We were enemies because of our sins, and he's, he's forgiven our sins and brought us back into closeness with God. Amazing blessing. Thoughts and comments on all that. Alright, so this next section is not one of the easier ones in Romans. Uh, but I think we can get it. We may have some question marks still. But I think we can get the idea. And, and it's helpful if you can understand the context. His point is how great the salvation is Jesus has given we have wonderful salvation. We have a, a wonderful blessing. Jesus did something revolutionary in human history. 
Something that had a profound impact that could only be compared with what Adam did at the beginning. You know, Jesus, Jesus, one act of obedience, overcame and then a whole lot Adam's one act of disobedience. And if one man brought sin and death into the world, Jesus brings salvation to the world. And so you can, what he's trying to do is just say, what Jesus did was so incredibly impactful. You can't even give an analogy that's, that's complete. No one has ever had the impact on the human race that Jesus did. But the closest comparison would be Adam. What Adam did was reversed by Jesus, and what he did. Okay, so with that, uh, kind of trying to put the context. Let's go ahead and read this, 12, 12 to 21. <laughs> Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, is all sin. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not given in the reason of law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the, by the one man's offense many died, much more than the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. The free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who received abundance of grace and gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous acts, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Whereas by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law answered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay. So I would like to just kind of work through this. We don't work through this a step at a time. It sounds like double time. So, therefore, justice through one man sin entered into the world. Who is that one man that sin entered into the world through? Adam. We know that story, right? And death through sin. What did God say about it the day you eat of it? You'll die. So death comes through the sin. And, and kind of tyrannize the world. And death, and death of sin, and so death spread to all men. You know, Adam kind of unleashed a holy terror. And why did death spread to all men? Because all sin. Everybody followed Adam in that. All sin is not a surprise. 323, for all have sinned. We already knew that. 
So Adam introduced sin. Sin brought death. Death spread to all men because of all sin. That, that really kind of just summarizes the record of our race. Now, think about an analogy. What if I said, for as through one man measles entered the town, and red spots through measles, so red spots passed to all men because all got the measles. That's the same sort of a thing. Just helps you to think about it. So Adam brought sin, that sin led to death, death spread to all men because everybody did what Adam did and sinned as well. Okay? You can ask questions and make comments as we go through this if you need to. It'll help if we can stay on the same page as we're going through it. 13 and 14 are kind of a parenthetical explanation, I think. And what they are doing is commenting on this phrase, because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no, when there is no law. Now, what is sin? So can you have sin without the law? How can you transgress something that doesn't exist? If sin is transgression of the law, there's no law, you'd have no sin. But he says, but until the law, sin was in the world. And sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him that is to come. Now, Adam to Moses, What's special about the time from Adam to Moses? The law. But did death reign from Adam to Moses? Does death come without sin? Can you sin without the law? So what do you do, what do you know about the period from Adam to Moses? There was a law. I think that's exactly right. They couldn't have been sinners if they hadn't. there wasn't a law. So before the law, there was law. There were some expectations God had that they were violating. So he said all sin. Somebody might say, wait a minute, you can't have sin until the law of Moses. Uh, Paul is saying, no, that's not true. Even before the law came, death was reigning, and therefore sin had to be there. And so people sinned even back then. People have sinned from Adam till today. Every accountable person has sin, other than Jesus. And uh, he says, uh, I did not sin in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of who? Jesus. In the sense that both of them did something that had a great impact on humanity. Well, Adam brought sin, and hasn't that had an impact on humanity? And Jesus brought salvation, and hasn't that had an impact on humanity? So in that sense, you can say they both had tremendous impact on, on mankind. So he's comparing Adam and Moses. But, wow, how can you compare Adam and Moses? They are so different. And so before he comes to the comparisons, he has to say, but they're really not like. They're really not like. They're really not like. Because there are so many radical differences. Now, trying to be sure of what the difference is he's pointing out in each verse <coughs> There's room for debate. I wouldn't be dogmatic about my suggestion. Hey, Gary. Yes. You keep saying Adam and Moses. Did I say Adam and Moses? It's Adam and Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. I'm not going to say anything, so just take what I mean. Yeah, it's Adam and Jesus. Sorry. Get Moses on the brain. So the, the, the radical difference between Adam and Jesus. 
they're, they're obviously comparable in some ways, but they are so different. Jesus is so much greater than that. And so he says, but the free gift in verse 15 is not like the transgression. He says, for if by the transgression of the one, the many die. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the men. The differences are so great that he can't really complete the comparison until he works on the differences a while and says, these are not alike, really, when you stop and look at it. So how are they not alike? Well, you've got the difference between many dying and grace abounding. You've got a difference of death versus life. I mean, death versus grace. It's, it's like totally opposite. Yes? Obedience and disobedience. Yes. So, so you know, they're alike in the fact that they had great impact, but they're so different in that they brought opposite things. You know, Adam brings death, and Jesus brings grace and the gift by his grace. I'll tell you another way they're different. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So his point is, Adam sinned once. The judgment resulted from one transgression. But Jesus' sacrifice forgives many transgressions. The transgression of many people all throughout history. So Adam, uh, Adam brings disaster through a single blunder. <coughs> but Jesus blesses by forgiving the sins of so many different people. And then look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. It's almost like he's saying, we have much more co- conviction of what will happen with Jesus than what happened with Adam. It's more powerful. Um, so those are things to really stop and reflect on. And see that in both effect, extent, and certainty, what Jesus did is so much greater than what Adam did. There, there just, there's no comparison. And yet he makes the comparison then in verse 18. So as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Jesus completely counteracts the effect of Adam's sin. So, everything Adam did, Jesus undid. And more, he undid what we did. So, Christ's right turn overcame Adam's wrong turn. Now, you can think about this in a couple different ways. I think the second way is what Paul has in mind. But I think the first way is also accurate. Did men die physically because of Adam's sin? How was that? What, what, what about Adam's sin caused men to die physically? Yeah, they lost their access to the tree of life driven out of the garden. Now, do you have to be a sinner to die physically? Don't babies die? They're not sinners? So, 
I would suggest that we are unconditionally, we will die physically unconditionally now. Whether we're righteous or wicked, whether we've ever sinned or not, every person will die physically in Adam. Will every person be raised physically in Jesus? Yes. First Corinthians 15 makes this very same point. In fact, we might look at it for a minute. First Corinthians 15 is making this point about the resurrection that I'm making right now. First Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Everybody will be raised back to physical life. What Adam did to us unconditionally, we will get back unconditionally in Jesus. So, Adam made all of us lose access to day of life and die physically. <coughs> And Jesus will bring everybody back to physical life. Uh, does that make sense? I think the point is more the spiritual death. Did Adam's sin in some way lead to our sinning? Yeah. We followed his example. We, we, we continue with that same pattern. So... Adam's descendants followed Adam's example and were lost because they shared in Adam's sin. Not specifically the sin, but sin that Adam committed. Jesus' followers imitate him and are saved because they share in Jesus' blood. Now, are you automatically made a sinner because of Adam's sin? If that were true, what about Jesus? And you don't have a Catholic they say Mary was immaculately conceived and therefore she couldn't pass on original sin. Uh, Protestants don't have that luxury. I'm not sure what they do with, uh, with that. But the fact is, we are not, we do not have original sin. Sin is not inheritable. We are not born in sin. We follow Adam's example and we sin when we choose to disobey the law. So we are not unconditionally condemned in Adam. We are condemned in Adam when we sin like Adam. <coughs> are we unconditionally saved in Jesus? No. We're saved in Jesus when we have faith in Jesus. So what we got from Adam unconditionally physical death, we get back unconditionally physical life. What we got, what we were lost in Adam conditionally, you know, being right with God, we, we died spiritually. We'll get back conditionally. By our faith, we're brought back to life with God, fellowship with God again. So, the Calvinist wants to say, we're unconditionally condemned in Adam and conditionally saved in Jesus. But that doesn't work. We're, whatever we lost unconditionally in Adam, we get back unconditionally in Jesus. Whatever we lost by following Adam, we get back by following Jesus. Maybe I should pause there. Obviously, there's a lot in these verses. And all of them are really saying Jesus is so much greater than Adam. Nobody other than Adam has such a universal impact on the race, and Jesus has so much more. Do you want to ask some questions or make some comments through 19 Peterson? Uh, <coughs> this might be answered in chapter 7. What basis did God destroy the 
Well, I believe God had laws, whether they were written or not, that he expected men to follow. And they weren't following. I don't know whether he had written laws. Maybe he did, we don't have them. But he didn't have to have written laws to have laws that people knew and understood. And so people were acting wickedly, which is a proof that they had the opportunity to know what righteousness was. Noah, on the other hand, obeyed God and was, was righteous before him. So I think there were laws and a, some kind of a moral code that God had the right to expect people to follow. Other questions coming? Joe? Does 214 answer that? Yes, certainly that everyone has some kind of a law or norm that they break. What else is that? Matt? So kind of in context, what this part here is talking about, that Paul is just talking about how great uh, Christ's sacrifice for us was, and here you're just pointing out that this is the singular most important and significant thing that's happened through his history. Uh, and then you compare it to the seconds that was like it and showed how far the period was to even that. Am I understanding that properly? I'm not sure about the second that was like it. Uh, that being the second most significant thing they had. So. Okay, yes. Now, he's really showing the greatness of what Jesus has done. He's counteracted what Adam did. He's counteracted what we did too. Yes? There must have been some kind of law because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. And God condemned Cain for killing Abel. Also, now, that, clearly there were laws, there were expectations that God had. He had the right to have. Scott, for, for the sake of the young people, because I understand it perfectly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm asking for a friend. Could um, <laughs> you? Just this concept of <coughs> gaining back physical life through Jesus, the physical death through Adam. Could you talk about that again, just to help me better understand? Okay, so when Adam lost access to the garden, everybody lost access to the garden. Nobody eats the tree of life, and therefore physical death came to all men. Whether they've ever sinned or not, people die. Jesus will raise all men back to physical life. He will, he will restore men's life and will be raised in glorified bodies and all that kind of stuff. I assume the wicked won't be raised in glorified bodies. I don't know what their bodies will be like, but they'll be brought back to life. Okay. Yeah. All right. And you got that also in John 5, 28, 29. It's a good passage. Good questions, Jason. Well, and piggyback, piggybacking on what's Scott's question. You may oh, say, that wasn't my question. <laughs> <laughs> he's asking me. Uh, but uh, whatever we lost uh, unconditionally in, in Adam, we gained unconditionally in Jesus now. Is that I think by right. choosing to follow Adam's example of sin? That's conditional, then. That's the conditional, and then we gain that. Conditionally, I'm following Jesus. Other questions and comments? Good questions. Questions? I've seen, uh, you know, verses 12 and 14 when you're talking about <coughs> sin entering the world and death by sin. I mean, I, I totally understand that that's physical death that we're talking about, but would that not also apply to spiritual death? I think it means primarily spiritual death. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
I think primarily the death that came was separation from God. Does that kind of muddy a little bit if it has dual meaning? Like you use the word death and it has double meaning the entire time. That kind of muddies the water a little bit. Well, maybe a bit more challenging, more interesting. <laughs> There's debate about this passage. Some people take it as only applying to physical death. I think the emphasis in Romans is more on spiritual death and life, and so that needs to be the primary focus. Yeah. When you look at it in the context, you might think, how how can people get original sin out of that? Well, they're not very logical. <laughs> because they have been unconditionally condemned in Adam, but conditionally saved in Jesus. Really, the Calvinist thought of you is universal. If we're all unconditionally damned in Adam, we ought to all to be unconditionally yes. saved in Jesus. Yes. So a universalist position would be a more logical thing than their position, which is really inconsistent. And from the context, I've never heard one person ever make that discussion of since we're all dead in Adam, we all live eternally through Jesus. No one's ever said, no Calvinist has ever said that. Maybe not a Calvinist, the universalist do use this passage for that. But yeah, that, that's, that would be more logical because it would. We follow the logic of what they say. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Other comments or questions? Okay. So look at 20. The law came in. Now, you might think, here's the answer. Here's the thing that will save us. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. <laughs> well, it didn't exactly help, did it? It increased the transgression, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law was not given to answer the problem of sin. The law was given to bring sin more to light, to make the need for a Savior more apparent. Paul is showing that that the law is not able to save. The law shows you how guilty you are, but only God's grace can save the law is like a magnifying glass that shows man's sins and shows man's, man's helplessness as he struggles against them. You know, it's not like the law really increased the number of dirty spots, but it made them stand out a lot more, made them more obvious. And so the law came in to show us how much we needed salvation, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life with Jesus Christ. Our Lord. The grace abounded to counteract the sin. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. He was willing to supply more and more and more grace as the sin increased. Can you be too sinful for God to be willing to sin? I think the answer is no. I think no matter how sinful you may be, God is willing to save you. He wants to save you. He wants to bless you. These are just really encouraging things. The God's desire and eagerness for our salvation. Thoughts and comments then on everything chapter five. Yeah. I think it, it medically it makes a lot of sense too. Like you get a CAT scan that just shows you what's wrong with you or what could be wrong with you. You get an X-ray, you know, you show, it shows you where the, the break is, but uh, it doesn't. You know, an X-ray doesn't do anything. Really squat to, to fix your problem. It just shows you that you need to fix it. Right, yeah. The law diagnoses, but it doesn't uh, provide the, the remedy. Yeah. John. 
go back to the Calvinist stuff. Uh, you were talking about how illogical it was, and the question was, you know, how did they get it from here? I don't think a Calvinist actually reads through this and picks out original sin from it, but they come into it with some presuppositions already. So maybe a good lesson for us is to make sure that we read it for what it says and not just presuppositions. Absolutely. It is so easy to twist passages to fit what we already think. So try to come to the Bible and just see what's there. Believe what's written. Because you see people just going through all kinds of gyrations. It amazes me sometimes when I read people that are smart people. And they're just like, how did you ever come to that point? You're not seeing what's here, obviously here. But it's easy for us to do that too. We're not exempt from that. We need to keep a good heart and conscience and really read the Bible listening to what it's saying. Other thoughts? Yeah, okay. Just just on that, I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses too about some stuff, and it I see it in their face that they don't they know that what they just what just came out of their mouth they know it they one hundred percent know it they know it's wrong they know it doesn't make sense but they're going to stick to it anyway and that and just for the sake of the doctrine so sometimes it's it's not necessarily that they're not dumb they're not stupid and they're not really illogical they know it's dumb but. They're not willing to so, do a lot of people are deceived. A lot of people really convince themselves of things that are wrong. Uh, and it's easy for us to do that too. You know, so just really keeping our eyes open and really trusting what the word says. Very important. Other thoughts? But it, what you said earlier about knowing why and getting the opportunity to teach people, but not just say this is what we believe, but going back and finding out why we believe what we believe and making it make sense based on what the Bible actually says, if you will do that, it will strengthen your faith and make it so much. It just builds your confidence so much. If you can go back and figure out why is it we believe what we believe. Don't just take it on surface level. Dig it out and find it. And it helps you tremendously. Sure. Other thoughts? Joe? I look at these passages a lot, especially with other people as well. That how overwhelming is it if I just think about myself? The first three chapters breaks me down completely. Uh, I have absolutely no hope in myself. But then from 324 on, it's like, oh, so this is what Christ has done. This is what God has done. This is where righteousness comes from. You know, I, I need to appreciate that. I need, I need to dwell on that for my own sake primarily. Uh, certainly study with other people, but I've got to believe how bad I was and am apart from Christ in order to see how great God is. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've heard the story of Jesus for a long time. It, it's amazing, but it can get to be sort of routine. And, you know, for us to really appreciate our salvation, we have to really appreciate our lostness and our desperate need and be amazed at what the Lord was willing to do. It's amazing Jesus was willing to go through what he did. To save us. There needs to be a greater sense of wonder and amazement, gratitude, love. I mean, you're right. It's, it's, it's what, you know, we can almost analyze these passages. We can, we can, you know, systematize them and organize them and, you know, whatever. But are we, are we, are we being impacted by it? This ought to really move us and uh, ought to be something that's like, wow, Jesus ain't me. 
at such a call? Wow. Other thoughts? Yes, Charles. I really understand 14 is that death reigned from Adam until Moses, yet going to 20 and 21, it seems that death still reigned even under the law. I don't understand the connection to that. Well, I think his point is that all sin, even before the law, because they wouldn't have, death wouldn't have reigned if they hadn't been sinners. So there must have been some kind of law or moral code or expectation even before the law came. There's always been law even before the law. The point he made in 2.14, the Gentiles have a law. They have some kind of moral code they follow, but they don't. You know, everybody's broken their law. Whatever law that was. Awesome. And we see the devil, you know, trying to infiltrate so many to, to make things commonplace, right? We talked earlier about the LGBT movement, that, that those things are common, those are everyday, to try to change our perception. The devil, the devil does that. You know? The things that we know are morally right, the things that we know should be law, we, we are weighted by so many who are not following God's law, which is that comment. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you're right. Yeah, we have to, uh, we have to really keep our thinking and our moral standards with the Lord and not with the world around us. Yeah. Good thoughts. Other comments? Yeah. If Joe lived before Moses in that time period, he saw his death prior. If that be true, he made sacrifices for his sons that they may have sinned. But for sins for them, so everywhere shows they added knowledge for sin. Yeah, no doubt about it. And even what Job said in chapter 31 about the moral standard he lived by. Wow. <laughs> that, that's a pretty good statement of the gospel and some of the principles in Job 31. So, yeah, I think good point. Definitely, there's always been some kind of a law, some kind of a standard, some kind of expectation. I think that's when all sin, even before Moses, because there was some kind of a law before the law. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, 
I'm not sure that I know how they felt about that. In, in some ways, it's amazing that God allowed them to kill an animal so they wouldn't have to die. In some ways, that's a provision by God's grace. Still, at all, obviously, an animal sacrifice can't really be adequate substitute for man. But God was graciously allowing them to sacrifice an animal in their place. I think the one more would miss